Everyone, welcome to another episode of the Macrovisor podcast. Myself and Aisha are joined by Tarek Brooker today from Australia. We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on down under. But before we do, Tarek, how's it going? You're not too bad, mate. How are you, how are you all faring today? No complaints over here. All good, all good. Um, interesting markets, interesting times. So it's good to have an expert on. Um, Tarek, thank you for joining us. Will you introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about your background for the audience? Yeah, no worries. Uh, I, I started out working as a journalist and basically over time I took an interest in financial markets and economics and, you know, I made a bit of a name for myself in terms of being what is basically an independent analyst. I mostly work for News Corp, which is, you know, one of the largest uh, media companies in the world, and I, you know, I do public, I do public speaking, I do all ma- all manner of stuff. And if you want to check that out, I'm sure there'll be some links in the in the description or or wherever. So, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Well, really appreciate that, and it's it's cool to chat. We've been interacting on social media for a while. We've done one appearance all together, all of us with Credelli, but it's great to have you here with us and love to talk a little bit more about what's going on in Australia. Let's kick it off first with the inflation situation, because it seems like it's similar to what we're seeing in other places. It seems like it's a little bit more sticky. It is more sticky. And I think it's also just worth noting that Australia is in a very different place to a lot of other nations, say, for example, most notably the US in terms of where we are in our inflation cycle. So, for example, in the US, we've recently seen the seen the contribution of rents start to roll over in year on year terms in the US CPI. But here in Australia, our rental our rental CPI is nowhere near peaking. And even before a, re- a recent Senate Estimates Committee, the RBA governor warned that rental inflation was going to stay high for, and I quote, a long time to come. So I think it's really just worth noting how different Australia is in that regard. Well, and just that our drivers of inflation are at a very different stage. And even say, for example, with the US, you know, the energy price shock has really begun to fade, you know, quite significantly to the point where the energy contribution in the CPI is now negative year on year. But here in Australia, our energy price shock in terms of things like household gas and household electricity, they are now only just starting to head towards their peak. So we are looking at a situation where we've potentially got another, you know, 12 months worth of electricity inflation, electricity and gas inflation baked into the into the CPI, as well as rental inflation as well. And Tarek, what do you think makes Australia so much different as to where it is? Our cycle tends to lag the US historically, and I think it's also just the the impact of lockdowns and the impact of COVID because Australia, most most notably uh, New South Wales and Victoria, took the pandemic quite a lot more seriously than the US for, and some of the other, other developed world nations for quite a bit longer. So, you know, while the US economy was starting to sort of roar back into life towards the middle and latter half of 2021, you know, Australia's biggest cities by population were still in some degree of lockdown in sort of October and November. 
So we are very much behind in terms of that particular story. And I think it's just also worth exploring for a minute just how that is playing out in terms of our economic cycle as well as our inflationary cycle. Because, you know, our growth held up a bit longer than growth did in Europe and it did in the US. But now that's starting to show some real signs of fading as it did during 2022 for the US economy. That's very interesting. And what about New Zealand? Is the situation the same over there where inflation is concerned? Yeah, the the inflationary situation in New Zealand is relatively similar to Australia. They they are facing some slightly different issues because their economy reopened even later than Australia. So they have these competing forces, shall we say, of because they've still got the, the revenge spending and all those different things. And that, that, that occurred much, much later in New Zealand than it did in Australia. But there's also on the, on the counterfactual side of things, there is also the fact that the, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand was the first central bank in the developed world to raise interest rates. And they're also the high, I believe, currently the highest rates in the world at five and a half percent. Not in the world, in the developed world, at five and a half percent. So they 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 are further along in the economic cycle in some ways in Australia. So, for example, they they've already you know they've already seen their economic downturn occur, whereas for Australia that still very much lays ahead of us, at least in terms of the headline GDP data. So they're the highest in the world at the moment, but I think the UK might actually beat them very soon. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's looking pretty good. I mean, you know, with with some people talking a six and a half percent Bank of England rate, um, I think it's I think that that's a pretty good bet. Unless you know something goes into complete meltdown in the UK or globally, I think that that's probably a, probably a good bet. Right. So I wanted to jump a little bit into um, the housing market. So I know we exchanged a few messages on the housing market and you just spoke about rent as well being extremely high and not at its peak in Australia. So what's the broader housing market looking like over there? It's looking it's it's really it's really quite an interesting one because from the time rates started to rise and even a little bit before that, we started to see housing prices roll over in most of Australia's big housing markets. And that continued up until about sort of, depending on the market, February or March this year. But since then, we've actually seen prices start to rise in most locales, with the exception of some regional areas, because you know there's different market dynamics at work. But the interesting thing is that has generally been driven by m- very much the same issues that some other housing markets have faced in the world. So, for example, the US, Canada, etc., where they have issues with low levels of supply on the market. Now, what's been really interesting to watch here is that since about September or October last year, the number of new property listings has just fallen off. It's fallen off a cliff. It's 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 dropped to a level in per capita terms overall that hasn't been seen in in decades. So that has really played a significant role in supporting the market as people just basically just decided to stay put. And that has really played a significant role. And on the other side of the coin, so while we've seen supply get restricted, on the other side of the coin, Australia is also in the midst of a fairly severe rental crisis. Now, depending on which private provider you ask, 
rents are up somewhere between 12 and 28% over the last 12 months. Now, that's and that's a fairly, you know, a fairly significant whack and that has caused some real problems here in Australia. There are a lot of people, people with full-time, even dual-income households who just cannot get a rental property just because competition in some areas is just so hot. So the data that I've that I've seen from various sources suggest that that is a significant factor in driving people into the housing market, into buying properties because they just want the certainty of having a place to live. So that is really, those two forces have really come together to support the property market in a way that not very many analysts, if, if any, really would have suggested, you know, 12 months ago. That's really interesting. And that's certainly um, something that, you know, there's some similarities to what we're seeing in the U.S., but it's it's quite a bit different with rent being so much more than the cost of housing. We actually have the opposite going on here. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's just Australia and the U.S. are on, are on very different tracks in, in that regard, because here in Australia, we are, we have seen the largest increase in in immigration in nominal terms in, in history. Now, while a, a, a net overseas migration intake of 389,000 might not sound like a lot to a nation with, like the US, which has a population of well over 320 million, for Australia, which has a population of 26 million, it's much, much more difficult for our rental market to absorb all that additional demand. And I think it's it's worth noting that, you know, prior to the to the pandemic, the previous record was about 300,000. And prior to that, in terms of like prior to the actual pandemic, a norm, a more normal year was about 200,000. So, you know, you've seen this huge increase in migration, which has put additional pressure on the rental market. And that's also played a significant role supporting the housing market. Just as an interesting little side note, there are more high net worth individuals moving to Australia in nominal terms than any other nation in the world. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. And, you know, it kind of brings up a different topic, and that is some of the wealth effects. Since we're talking about high net worth of central bank policy, I know we have central bank decisions coming up, um, Australia and New Zealand. What are you looking for from these central banks, given that we're in this environment, as you described, persistent inflation in housing and otherwise, it seems like they have their work cut out for them. They do. And I think that, you know, say, for example, in, in New Zealand, I think that for the moment, they're relatively happy to just see how things play out. They've they've got the economic downturn that they wanted. And I think that, you know, that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand deserves a great deal of credit for being upfront about that. But as as for Australia, the, the outlook is a, a bit more murky. I feel like the RBA has been dragged along to a degree by the Fed. And I think they'll probably be dragged higher if the Fed takes rates higher, which is at this point is looking very likely in July. I imagine the RBA will follow in August. But beyond that, I feel like things are looking increasingly murky in terms of where rates will go. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we saw this big surge in, in rate hike expectations from the banks. You know, they were talking about you know, a cash rate of, you know, 4.6 or 4.85. And, you know, that's something that wasn't really even a twinkle in people's eye a couple of, you know, not really all that long ago. 
But I feel like the, the latest, you know, sort of rhetoric from the RBA, we had Phil Lowe come out in the last few days and say, you know, he's not sure if there's going to be more rate hikes. And that's been a real sort of twist on, on the sort of shock and awe approach that the RBA took into the May meeting where they, where they raised rates against all market expectations and really shocked the market. And I think that they're, they're starting to get a little bit concerned, maybe a bit fearful about about how all this could, could end up playing out in the long run. Because, I mean, you know, their data showed that 15% of Australian mortgage holders would have what they call negative spare cash flow if the cash rate reached 3.6% and today it's 4.1%. So I think the clock's ticking in that regard. So Tarek, it sounds like they, they're kind of walking the tightrope, right? On the one hand, if they tighten too much, they're going to probably break the economy and, and maybe cause some other cascade effects in credit markets. But on the other hand, if they don't, this inflation, if it hasn't already, it becomes more structural in nature. It becomes sort of the new normal. Looking ahead, what path do you think that, that we might see play out? Because it sounds like there's no great choices here. No. No, there's 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 bad and worse, and I think that there's there's a real, unlike the unlike the U.S. economy uh, and unlike you know the Fed, where they they have their independence, and you know yeah you see you know certain politicians at times you know throwing a spanner in the works or someone like, you know Senator Elizabeth Warren really you know, trying to influence the Fed, here in Australia, things have gone a bit a bit more diff- a bit differently, the the new government, which came in, in in May of last year, the new federal government, they enacted a review of the RBA and basically said, you guys have completely stuffed this up. We need, we need to change, blah, blah, blah. And there is quite a bit of, shall we say, political turmoil around that in, the, in that a lot of people on the opposition side of politics are now saying, if we remove low, I mean, for example, a senator today came out and said that, in a, in a statement that basically if you remove low now, you are going to remove the incentive and remove the drive to address monetary policy properly because governors are going to think, oh, well, if I if I act aggressively, then I'm going to lose my job or the government's going to intervene. So that's really something that I think is, is influencing the RBA to a degree at the moment because as it stands... Our, our current governor is up. His, his term is up for renewal in September, and it's it's a really a coin flip as to whether or not he ends up keeping his job. And I think that if he doesn't end up keeping his job, and we do sort of see, you know, a more shall we say politically minded governor appointed, then you know we we could see continued entrenched inflation. It's 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 just really hard to know how they're going to prioritize things because, you know, there is an argument that in the past politics have gotten in the way. I mean, you know, some say that, that the RBA should have moved earlier and the reason why they didn't was because we had an election coming up. This is pretty interesting how, you know, politics is influencing the central bank here because most central banks are supposed to be independent, right? And they can't really do their jobs if they are influenced by politics. And as you rightly put it, you know, how can someone do their jobs if, you know, uh, they fear losing their job, right? So they're not, they will tread too carefully over here. And do you think that some of that has sort of influenced everything that's going on here? 
I think that I think that the the issue in Australia is that we we have we have a situation where we have the highest household debt in the world, and we have a situation where the housing market is very much in in, in a lot of different ways. It is the economy. Like I'll give you I'll give you an example in in 2021 in in the year to June of 2021, Australian households pulled out of their mortgage in the form of cash, 93 billion dollars. Now, the latest data that we have in terms of household, you know, household personal incomes during that time, it was a bit under a trillion dollars. So we are talking about somewhere around about nine, nine and a half percent of all household income being derived from pulling cash out of property. So rather than just having the normal wealth effect, as we know it, of rising asset prices and then people feel more confident and people go out and spend, we have a much, much more direct relationship in that regard, which I think really ends up influencing, you know, where central bank policy ends up going. And I mean, I'll I'll, I'll give you an example, like, some survey data con- conducted from a company called Digital Finance Analytics, they survey people who are refinancing their mortgages with another lender and they ask them, are you pulling out cash in the fo- you know, cash equity from your home in order to spend it on a business or whatever it is that you want to do with it? And something like, you know, pushing up towards 40% of households who are refinancing are pulling out this cash. So that's another factor that really complicates things for the RBA because Australians are sitting on over $7 trillion worth of equity. I mean, that in and of itself would make it one of the largest asset markets on, on, on the, in the world and, you know, probably somewhere in, in the, you know, the top 20. And I just, I think that that's a really, a really key thing to understand going forward that the Australian economy doesn't function like other economies for that reason, amongst others. This is so very interesting and stuff we really didn't know. I mean, this is a massive amount and very shocking. Um, And so this is such a good opportunity to learn about these kind of things. But, you know, I'm wondering about something you also said in the beginning, and I'm wondering why that is so. You talked about energy costs being much higher and just about to peak now for Australia, right? Um, why is that so? Why is uh, wh- why is there such a big difference between energy costs in the US or you know the eurozone versus Australia? Energy price transmission in Australia occurs basically a, a lot a lot slower. It's it's something that rather than you know so, something that occurs with relative immediacy, it requires you know the the approval of, of regulators etc. And it's something as well that it can be postponed. And that's something that occurred last year that we saw that the prices that the increase in the price of electricity last year was postponed before the ele- to till, until after the election. And, you know, to sort of, you know, give the give the government a bit of a leg up in the polls in that regard. So, you know, because of the way that the, that particular mechanism functions and there's various different ones, you know, there's, say, for example, Victoria does it at, at a state level, whereas there are others that do it at, at a more sort of, uh, wouldn't call it a national level, but there's a multiple, you know, a collection of multiple states that do it together. And I think it's also just worth noting that there are, that the, the the outcomes in terms of energy prices are actually quite disparate in some ways because there are there is Western Australia, which has its own, which where the 
and it, you know the the pub the household energy system is still owned by the government and it's and they also negotiated some very favorable outcomes in terms of gas prices whereas in the rest of australia things are less than favorable and this and i think one of the interesting things as well about australian household energy is that there have been years where australia has been the largest exporter of natural gas of lng you know liquefied natural gas in the world so the fact that we have these huge troubles with rising gas and electricity prices is really quite ironic in some ways. Really fascinating. And I just wanted to shift over a little bit to China, because I know Australia and China have a pretty important economic relationship, but at the same time, it's been strained, right? And and that's been something that's, I, I believe it's been an ongoing theme for years that's been worsening over time. Where is that right now? Where is the China-Australia relationship? How is trade at this point? And, and is that looking like it's going to improve? Or are we looking at more deterioration? over time because of some of these geopolitical tensions? Things have actually improved quite significantly over the last, I, I would say over the, say the last 12 months. Uh, the, the, the new government has probably helped in that regard and has given them a bit, you know, Beijing made perhaps a little bit more of a, a clean slate. So a lot of the various punitive trade actions that China took against Australia during the pandemic in particular have now been wound back to some degree, which has obviously been, you know, beneficial. But I think what's ended up happening over time is that Australia has just ended up finding other markets for these goods. And that's something that ironically, you know, sort of somewhat shot China in the foot in the end. You know, they say, for example, they, they, they went about their ban on Australian thermal coal. And then Australia just turned around and said, well, okay, if you don't want it, we'll sell it to India or we'll sell it to somebody else who, who is more than willing to buy our better quality coal. And then you can end up with coal from Indonesia or wherever else that's less, that, that you know, that, that has less quality. But I, I think that in the, in the long run, you know, we're going to see sort of two phases. We're seeing this sort of friendlier China who is trying to sort of you know, placate Australia, I feel at the moment, while it has bigger fish to fry in particular, as you know, the trade actions that it has with the US over rare earths and, and other other exports, you know, plays out in, you know, the various parts of the, you know, what some people are calling the tech war and the access to, to various uh, semiconductor components and, and raw materials. But I think, it, you know, that if the the trade tensions between the US and China continue to rise, and if things continue to deteriorate, then Australia is really going to be put in a, in a quite a challenging position because while China is by far our largest trading partner, you know, bigger than the next three or four on the list combined, we are also, you know, one of, a, one of the United States' closest allies, and we are the only country that has followed the US into you know, all, I, I believe we are the only country who's, that has followed all the US into all of its various m military adventures since since the end of World War II, if, if we were asked. So I think that that's something that's really going to play out quite interestingly over time, just that we do have those two competing forces that are pushing against each other. And eventually Australia may be put into a position where it's forced to choose. And Considering that our biggest export, which is iron ore, flows overwhelmingly to China, you know, if we do see, you know, trade tensions between the US and China really ramp up to something extremely severe, 
then Australia is going to get is really going to get crunched. You know what? It's interesting because China fired that first warning shot with gallium, right? And and it feels like that's kind of China saying, look, we know we have some even more strategically important rare earth metals that we could just completely cut off that would cripple your military's ability to respond to an intervention in Taiwan if they were to go there. And obviously, if that happened, all other methods of trying to put pressure on China would come on the table. And of course, Australia, like you said, they would be squeezed, right? They would be told by the U.S. government, look, you've really got to help us out. We don't have a lot of options militarily because of X, Y, and Z with these rare earths. And so it it sounds like exactly that type of scenario could play out. It, it may be on the horizon because one thing that we see is that tensions surrounding Taiwan continue to escalate. It doesn't seem like that's a situation that's being ameliorated in the short term. What's your take moving forward over the next three to five years? Do we get to that inevitable conflict? And, and which way does Australia lean? Do they take the side of the U.S. much to the uh, imperilment of their own economy? I think I think that we've we've sort of seen a real interesting evolution of the perception of China over over time here in Australia. Like prior to the pandemic, China, while you know obviously China was you know our largest strategic rival, it was also seen relatively favorably by the by the broader population. So sort of selling intervention and selling a war or whatever it was that Australia was asked to do by the U.S. would have been quite difficult. But since then, you know, the various polling that's done by, say, for example, by the Lowy Institute shows that Australia's perception of China has gone down a lot. It is now very, very unfavorable. And that is something that has really sort of transformed, I think, the the options of the Australian government. You know, before there may have been a drive to go in the other direction, to to side with economic interests over long-term, you know, geopolitical and geostrategic interests. But with the advent of, you know, the way things have played out, it's getting to be a very, very hard sell. And Australia is moving much closer to the US. I mean, we've seen that with, say, for example, the AUKUS deal, the Australia-UK-US deal, you know, to cooperate on things like nuclear submarines and and other defence projects. So I I think that, you know, we could see things to continue to escalate because, you know, China is in a demographic bind. You know, they're in a situation where, in some ways, you know, they're, they're not going to be in a better position to fight a war or to, to engage in a conflict or to, to you know, engage in brinksmanship, whichever, you know, particular thing that they, that they choose. Because, you know, and I think it's also just worth noting that they don't necessarily need to start a war. They could blockade Taiwan. They could take any number of actions, you know, that short of war, that make intervention by Australia or the US or anyone else, selling that all the more difficult. This is all very interesting. And honestly, we are both learning so much. Um, thank you again for joining us. But um, we talked a little bit about, you know, exports to China and you spoke about LNG, you spoke about iron ore. So I was wondering a little bit about how the local economy is doing, other than obviously your housing and all of this. So basically, we know that Australia has a lot of mining, a lot of agriculture, um, industrial production, of course. So how's the local economy and these local industries faring? Agriculture has been failing very, very, very well recently. Australia has had some very favorable climate conditions over the last couple of years. 
And uh, that's something that, that's quite cyclical. You know, as we go through the El Nino, La Nina cycle, you know, when we when we do have those periods of, of longer wet weather, they that can be quite favourable for Aussie farmers. You know, we've say, say for example, we've seen record harvests across multiple states uh, in in recent in recent times. But I mean, I also think it's worth noting that that is something that will end. You know, eventually the rains will will you know will shift to droughts because that's just the way our cycle works, and that's something that uh, meteorologists and climate scientists have have you know have warned about on a, on a cyclical basis. But in terms of like the the broader economy, I think that Australia is in, in an interesting position because as these geopolitical tensions with China rise, Australia is seeing more and more demand for those rare earths that China has, whether they have a monopoly or whether they have you know the overwhelming majority of the supply of, of some of these rare earths. Australia is now seen as an alternative. And that's something that the US Defense Department and others are looking to in order to secure the supply for the US going forward. Now, this isn't something that they can just flip a switch and be able to switch it all back on and, you know, shift out, switch over from China to Australia or, you know, a combination of other, you know, allied or like-minded nations. This is something that's going to take a lot of time, a lot of capex and a lot of investment. But it is something that is occurring, and I think that that is a reason to be longer-term bullish on the Australian economy because we are going to see that drive to duplicate, shall we say, elements of the rare earth supply chain and of the commodity supply chain so the US will be able to wean itself off of China in the longer term. But that's a that's a project that's likely going to take decades. But I think it's just to put that into a little bit of perspective, even though that is something that I think will help power Australia's economy in decades to come, relative to the size of things like iron ore or LNG or coal, it's it's in a very it's in a very different in a, in a very different scale. It's something that's going to be you know relatively minor compared with these other minerals that really rely not only on China but on a very specific type of Chinese growth, on construction growth, on what I would consider to be steel industry-driven growth. So, you know, infrastructure and property, both of which are starting to look a little bit shaky now in, in China with the property crackdown, but also with Chinese local government debt issues. Very interesting stuff, Tarek. And, and as we wind out here, you know, this has been first an illuminating interview. We really appreciate you spending time with us today. And, you know, we want to be mindful of your time and everyone else's time. So as we close out here, is there any other thoughts that you'd like to add, particularly as it concerns the stock market and uh, the Australian currency? Where do you see those going perhaps over the next half as we close out 2023? I think it's a, a great deal is going to depend on how the, the People's Bank of China ends up approaching the issue of the devaluating yuan. That it, because in the first half of this year, the Australian dollar has seen a fairly significant amount of support from the risk on in, in, U, in US assets. So for example, you know, the Australian dollar can be quite a significant proxy for, for uh, risk on moves in, in US stocks. But in terms of, you know, the, the sort of harder side of things in terms of the, the China, 
there's also the issue like as the Chinese yuan gets, you know, gets pushed down by the the yield deferential and a flagging economy, and as people also try to get their 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 yuan into dollars and now out of the Chinese economy, that is pushing putting pressure downward pressure on the Australian dollar, and if that were to unwind in the latter half of this year, and we were to see the, the Chinese currency get further devalued, that would really put the Australian dollar in a very vulnerable place. Now, that could be quite positive for some Australian exporters who have who export commodities in dollars, in US dollars, I should say. But on the other hand, then Australia also faces the issue of potentially importing inflation and having to take rates higher. So... And if you look at it, even the Australian dollar from a more technical perspective, it hasn't spent a whole lot of time in this range in, in recent in recent years. In over the you know in the long in the longer term, it's something you know that it, it that it generally likes to be a, a bit a bit higher than this and, and in a bit less of a vulnerable position. So that is something that I think could influence central bank policy going forward. But it, it's it could it is I think the Australian dollar is really going to be something to watch in the in the second half of this year for that reason. Very interesting. And certainly that is a dynamic that we have to pay very close attention to is what all China is going to do during this reopening cycle that doesn't seem to be much of a reopening at all. The idea of decoupling maybe being downplayed a bit as stimulus has been subdued and the impacts that could have on Australia and really the broader global markets and economy. So, Tarek, thanks again for joining us today. Really appreciate your time and your insights. Hope to have you back sometime soon. And everyone out there, really appreciate you listening to the Macrovisor podcast. If you listen to us on Apple, Amazon, Google, or Spotify, consider giving us a review, sharing your feedback with us, and sharing it with your friends and colleagues. 